Holy God, we come before you this morning with the words of Jacob. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. We recognize that you are here present among us as two or three have gathered together in your name. We recognize that you are present in the proclamation of your holy word. We pray that you would fill us with awe, that you would open our hearts to the good news, to the promise that you made to our spiritual father, Jacob, and the promise that you give us and how you made a way for us to become a part of this story of promise. And would you fill us with joy and wonder this morning? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Church of the Incarnation. Happy to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, it can be that you've been here for a few times, but still don't know me because I'm back uh, today for the second time. Uh, I was gone for like five weeks. So you might have come for four weeks, not been here last week, and you're still wondering, who is this guy? So I promise you I work here. Um, a few years back, um, our Bishop Todd had gathered a few of, uh, of us clergy in Los Angeles, and we were going to the office of an older pastor uh, who is at this point retired and emeritus and well-loved and well-respected, and we were going to hear his stories and gather some wisdom from him. His name was Jack Hayford, and he was the pastor of the now well-known church called Church of the Way. And he began there in Van Nuys, California in the year 1969. And he was, in his time, especially a prominent, charismatic leader. And he had grown a small church from 18 people to a church of thousands. And he also founded a seminary. And his church wasn't known for a flashy show or some kind of seeker-sensitive service or even feel-good preaching or pop psychology. His church had become famous as a place where people could connect with the presence of God and experience God's Holy Spirit. And as we sat with him, he shared with us the start of, of his ministry there, and there was just a handful of people, and there was these two, two older ladies who were faithful and they would come on Saturday before the service and they would lay hands on every chair in the room and they would pray. Pray for an outpouring of God's presence. And a revival did ensue from their prayers. And as he shared with us the story of the church, he said, you know, Sometimes people would come and, you know, they would experience God, but for whatever reason, it wasn't for them, right? Like their style of church maybe wasn't their thing, and maybe they found themselves not coming back after that one visit. But no matter what would happen, they would always know that there was this place that I could go. If ever I was looking to encounter the presence of God, there's this place that I know that I can go and I can find God and friends, I would say it's like that here for us at Incarnation. At least this is our deep desire. That on Sunday mornings when we gather, that this would be a place 
where people can encounter God's presence. Encounter him as we sing and as we're silent. Encounter him in the preaching of the word and in the word made present to us at the table. This morning we get to reflect on a story about the transforming presence of God. We get to talk about Jacob's encounter with God. But before we go there, we have to talk about Verona. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Verona, but I had the pleasure of journeying to Verona, Italy uh, this summer, and it's a beautiful sight to see. It is a city with beautifully preserved medieval walls that are high and stretch around the city. And in this beautifully preserved medieval city, there is an old Roman arena right in the middle of the city. And there's just so much beauty and so much charm there and so much to see. And if you're like me, you probably didn't know a lot about Verona until recently, but you might recognize that Verona is one of these cities that shows up in Shakespeare. And for some reason, examples in my sermon always had to do with something with like 90s rap music, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then Shakespeare. Somehow, they keep showing up. <laughs> but you probably, like me, were forced to read Romeo and Juliet in high school at some point, right? I think there was English one for us or something, can't remember. But there's this scene, right, where uh, Romeo has killed, uh, is it Tybalt, I think is his name, and then uh, the friar, his, his priest is there, Friar Lawrence. And Friar Lawrence is explaining to Romeo that the punishment for his crime is not going to be death, but only banishment. And this is how Romeo responds. Ha, banishment, be merciful and say death. For exile hath more terror in his look, much more than death. Do not say banishment. And then Friar Lawrence responds, Hence from Verona art thou banished. Be patient, for the world is broad and wide. To which Romeo responds, But there is no world without Verona walls, but purgatory, torture, hell itself. Hence banished, is banished from the world, and the world's exile is death. Then banished is death mistermed, calling death banished. Thou cuttest my head off with a golden axe, and smilest upon the stroke that murders me. And these beautiful words really bring home for us the idea that to leave everything you have ever known and loved is, in a sense, a death. And as the opening scene, as the scene opens in our story in Genesis 28 this morning, we find a Jacob that has been banished. And for this, we need to know the backstory. You might remember that we talked about last week that Jacob tricked his brother Esau, or, or basically got him to sell his birthright, right, for a bowl of red lentils, which red lentils are delicious, we know this. But 
Um, probably a good source of soluble fiber too, right? Um, I've been reading about that since I turned 40. Um, what are we talking about? But just before the scene opens in this story, I would say something even worse has happened. Jacob has shown his true colors. And what happened was his father Isaac asked Esau, his older son, said, hey, go kill some wild game and bring it back into me and cook me a meal. And when you do, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you my blessing. I'm old. I can't really see. I'm going to pass soon. I want to bless you. And as he did that, his mom come, uh, the mom comes in, right? And she says, hey, Jacob, let's just uh, make sure you get the blessing instead. So uh, I'm going to make sure you feel furry, so I'm going to dress you up in some sheepskin because Esau's hairy. We know you're not, right? You're an inside boy. And we're going to get some sheep, and you're just going to pretend that's wild game or something, and you're going to bring that in to your father. And so together with his mom, Jacob lies and deceives his dad. His dad says, is this release? Oh, yes, it's, it's your son. Bless me. And so Isaac gives him the blessing that he meant to give to Esau. And then Esau comes in just five minutes after Jacob walks out the door, right? And Isaac is shaking like, oh, no, what have I done? And it turns out that these words of bless, blessing are more powerful than we could imagine. Because Isaac has to tell his son Esau that there's no way to undo this blessing. I have already said all the blessings belong to him and it will all be his. What can I give to you? And so Esau goes out in rage and he begins to tell people, well, once my father is dead and once the morning is over, I'm going to kill my brother. So he resolves he's going to kill Jacob. And so the mom gets word of this, right? And she goes in to Isaac and she says, we've got to send our boy Jacob away because Esau is going to kill him. And that is the scene where our story begins. Jacob is banished. Now his reality is defined by both fear and guilt. And his future has evaporated before him. Think about it. He deceived and, and tricked, tricked his brother into getting a birthright and into getting a blessing. But what good is a birthright inheriting the, the lion's share? And what good is a blessing if you can't live in the land to enjoy it? right? How are you going to inherit something if you aren't going to be there? And if you're dead, you can't inherit it, right? And you have to flee from your impending murder. You can't enjoy it either. And so it, it appears as if the future is ruined for Jacob. He's a fugitive. He's displaced. He's forgotten, and he's hopeless and abandoned. Home, all he knows the place where all his people are, the place where for him everything was always provided is no longer a safe place. Can you imagine what it might be like, that feeling of knowing you might never be able to go home again? That place that for you always meant safety might never be there for you again. 
I think this story connects with us on such a deep level because it's such a human story. Whether we've ever truly known a good home or had a sense of security, we all know what it's like to long for home and for safety. Perhaps like Jacob, you know what it's like to feel guilty about poor decisions that you have made, decisions that have jeopardized relationships, perhaps core relationships in your life, like family. And I think we can all imagine how gut-wrenching it must have been to leave the good life behind and to journey through the desert in search of a brand new future. The story will be familiar to many of us who have spent time living in the Southwest United States because many people have come over the border, our southern borders, as they too were forced to leave their homes, to leave what is familiar, to leave behind all the things that they love, also because of threats of violence. And of course, I know we can easily say, hey, Jacob brought this on himself, okay? He's kind of getting what he deserved. And I absolutely don't think that this text is inviting us to be especially sympathetic for someone who has lied and cheated his father and his brother. All I'm saying is that I know what it's like and I know how it feels to feel like I've really screwed some things up and at the same time feel like it's impossible to fix what's behind me in the relationship. And so our passage today picks up in verse 10. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran and came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Now, I Google map this for you guys because you might not remember exactly where Haran is on the map. I know I had forgotten. But uh, isn't Google Maps amazing? I mean, you'd be like, let's do, let's do walking directions, right? From Beersheba to Haran and see what happens, right? And so, oh man, is this, man, you know what? I didn't save it. All right, I'm gonna do old-fashioned point with my finger kind of thing. I had made this like thing where I, all right, so this right here is Beersheba. It's down here in the Gaza Strip. And then where, where our story picks up, or where it ends actually, is so Jacob begins walking from Beersheba to Bethel. So this is kind of where the story happens. But all the way up here is Aran, and you can see it's a 189-hour trip walking if you could walk straight and that is eight days so which you cannot walk eight days straight and so that means it's a two to three week journey at least over about 500 miles so it'd be like walking from here to Indianapolis except in this area if you've ever been you notice it rains less and so there are less living things and it's arid and it's rocky and it is a treacherous journey truly Jacob has left safety, and he's traveling across a desert. And Jacob is weary from traveling all day. And night has come, 
And Jacob is literally in the middle of nowhere. He is in an arid and rocky wilderness. And he finds a place where he thinks he can rest for the night. And he finds a few stones that he will use as a pillow. And Jacob is now all alone in the world. And I imagine he lays there on his bed. The feeling of loneliness he must have felt as it seeps in that he is truly all alone. And from deep exhaustion, he falls asleep in the most vulnerable position he has ever lied in in his life. And what Jacob doesn't know is that he is falling asleep in what the Celtic Christians called a thin place. And by thin place, they simply meant a thin place where the veil between heaven and earth is a little bit thinner, where heaven seems to touch earth in some strange kind of way. And here God is going to reveal himself as a God who shows up in lonely and vulnerable places. Jacob thought he was in a God-forsaken wilderness And he thought his own life was God-forsaken along with it. And in all of his guilt and fear and loneliness, he was sure that God had forgotten about him. Before this dream, Jacob might have thought of heaven as some far-off place that was disconnected from earth. But here we receive a revelation Heaven and earth are connected. Heaven is not unconcerned or remote. And in this dream, Jacob sees what our text says as a ladder. You might read in some translation, it says a stairway. Uh, Some commentators say maybe this was like the ziggurats that kind of had these ramps that were kind of going up, if ever you've seen pictures of that. But some kind of way, there is a ladder. There is something that is connecting the unbridgeable passage from heaven to earth. And suddenly there is a way for these angels. And if you you don't know, angel in the Bible really just means messengers. These are royal messengers of the royal king in heaven. And these royal messengers are being sent from heaven to earth. And they're going back and forth. And they're doing the bidding of the king. And what this story tells us to our surprise is that God in heaven is not up there and he's not forgotten about what is happening here. But he is deeply involved with what is happening here on earth. And the kingdom of heaven is in a sense imposing on this kingdom of earth. And it's a place of high activity and God's messengers are coming and going The reality of the kingdom is strange and wonderful. They're constantly going back and forth to carry out God's message on earth. This is God at work bringing about the promises that he made to Abraham. The kingdom of God is at work on earth. And this means that God is not content to let us, to let us live according to our own devices. He is a God that intrudes on our story. And as it turns out, God's intrusion will redefine human reality. Jacob is going to go from a life that is defined by guilt and fear to a life that is now going to be defined by promise. 
And verse 13 says this, the Lord stand beside Jacob and gives him, he's gonna give him the same promise here that he gives his father Isaac and Isaac's father Abraham. It says this, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And it's not just about you and something I'm going to do for you because all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Now, if you've been tuning in with us for the last couple of weeks in Genesis, this promise isn't new. It's the same promise you heard from Abraham, given to Abraham, and it's the same promise given to Isaac. But here for Jacob, God's going to add on to the promise. And here's the additional blessing that comes with it. The first is the promise of presence. Verse 15 says, and know that I am with you. You're not going to be alone. It's the beginning of a revelation we call Emmanuel. The God who is with us. Revealed most intensely in the person of Jesus Christ who as he is leaving his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, says, and look, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. God is a God who promises to be with us. And then secondly, there's a promise of protection. And I will keep you wherever you go. I will keep you like a shepherd keeps Sheep. Notice Isaac didn't need a promise of someone to protect him. Because <laughs> Isaac wasn't cheating and stealing from people and trying to get himself killed. But Jacob is the kind of man that is going to need protection in the world. And to that, God raises his hand and says, I'll be the one to keep you. And over and over again in the Bible, God reveals himself as the God who keeps watch over his people Israel, we pray, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is going to keep me as a shepherd keeps the sheep. And then thirdly, we see the promise of homecoming. He says to Jacob, I will bring you back to this land, and nor will I leave you until I have done what I have said I have promised to you. It's the promise of of homecoming. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, the most wonderful and the most mysterious and the most shocking thing about this story is not this theophany or not this vision of angels and kind of this vision of heaven coming to earth. And I mean, don't get me wrong, it's an amazing vision and it's powerful and it's moving. But what I think's most shocking about this story is how God so decisively promises to be with a person like Jacob. The God of heaven has committed himself to a lying, deceiving man who is on the run for his life. The Old Testament commentator Walter Brueggemann put it this way. 
the miracle is the way this sovereign God binds himself to this treacherous fugitive. And in our story, there is no attempt to rationalize or to justify God would, why a God would so radically commit himself to a person like Jacob. God is committed to Jacob and binds himself to bless and protect him, even though Jacob is Jacob. As you read further, you will notice that the same God is committed to his people Israel, and he binds himself to bless and to protect them, even as he knows that Israel will be sinful and unfaithful and doesn't, it is not going to love well. And friends, this is the entire story of the Bible, from the first book in Genesis to the very last book of Revelation. It's a story about a God who is committed to a people, a God who binds himself to us, a God who makes promises to us. Despite our unfaithfulness, he's a God who will not be unfaithful. He's a God that is faithful to his promise and he will bring it about. There's no rationale in the story, but we at least have a word to describe it. And that word is a word we call grace. And so how does Jacob respond to this grace? Jacob responds in faith. He believes the good news of God's kingdom. Jacob wakes from his sleep and he believes the dreams about the angels is more real than the nightmare in which he finds himself living. He believes the dream about God's kingdom at work in the world and the reality of God's promise is more real than the reality of his fear and guilt and abandonment. And he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than Beit El, the house of God. And he says, and this is the gate of heaven, the place where heaven is open to earth and where earth is open to heaven. And the text tells us that Jacob rose up early in the morning and he takes these stones that had been under his head and he makes this pillar, this monument, and he pours oil on top of it. And he calls the place Bethel, Beth, house, El, means God, the house of God. And Jacob makes a vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. What I love about the story is that Jacob would have known all about 
Abraham, his grandfather, in the experience of Abraham with God and all the things that God had said to Abraham. And he would have been versed in what happened with his father Isaac and how God had appeared to Isaac and the promises that he had had. But up until this point, Jacob hasn't had his own encounter with the living God. And so it's a reminder to us that in every generation, we have to encounter God for ourselves. We can live off the testimony of our parents and those who have come before us, but that testimony is only going to get us to a certain point. At some point, we need to come to a spot where we can have an encounter, where we can say, I have seen the risen Lord. Surely God was in this place. And Jacob goes on and says, And this stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be a house for God. And he says, And all that you give me, I will surely give you one-tenth. This is Jacob's encounter with grace, the encounter of God's presence and God's promise. And this presence and this promise reorients Jacob's life. And Jacob rightly responds to grace with an act of worship. He sets up a pillar to mark this space as sacred. And it's going to be a monument not only for him, but a monument that will invite future generations to come and experience the God of promise who makes himself present to the people. And Jacob pledges up a tithe offering. He pledges one-tenth of all that God will give him to give back to the God that blesses. And what I love about these stories in Genesis is that they're just so wild. They're just in the wilderness. This is before the law ever came, and there's no temple, and there's no tabernacle, and they're just kind of out there, like figuring out this life with God, kind of on their own, right? There's not a lot of folks that have come before them. And there's no commandment from God, oh, you have to tithe or you have to give a tenth. There's no even request at this point. There's just this experience of grace, this profound experience of God's presence and this transforming gift of of calling him and assuring him of the promise, even in his sinfulness and his deceitfulness. And I love this free response that it gives. It's a response of worship and a response of generosity. I pray the same kind of grace would well up in my own heart. I want to close our time today with an image. It's an image of Christ on a ladder. In the 1200s, in both the East and the West, in the churches, these images started popping up in churches. So this comes from a church in Macedonia, and you can find these same images in churches in Serbia and in Italy. And it is an image of Christ climbing a ladder up the cross. And the image is to emphasize how Christ resolutely goes to the cross. He ascends willingly, enthusiastically, demonstrating a heroic acceptance of death, And in taking these steps, he embodies what he had told the crowds in John 10, 18. 
No one takes my life from me. I lay it on my own accord, and I have power to lay it down. It's a really incredible image. Now, historians today don't actually believe that this is how crucifixion worked, that people climbed the ladder. And if you look at art, you can see throughout different ages, they depict this kind of Christ going on the cross in different ways. And so we're not really sure exactly how it worked, but even if it doesn't depict exactly how it happens, it depicts a theological reality. And the reality is this, that Christ completely of his own accord, out of love for you, willingly went up to the cross, did not need a Roman soldier to prod and the poke and to get him up there, but he willingly ascended to the cross in order to make sacrifice for you so that you could be restored and reconciled to heaven. And the reason why I'm bringing this image in here is because there was a tradition at this time in the Armenian church that the place of Golgotha where Christ was crucified was also the place of Bethel, was also the same place where Jacob had the dream. And for them, this was the connection. We had no way to get to heaven There was no ladder that you and I could climb. But Jesus came and erected a ladder. And friends, that ladder is the cross. And that cross became for us a ladder that bridged for us an entry into heaven. And Jesus climbed that cross and he opened for us the gate of heaven. Friends, the cross is the gate of heaven. And Christ has swung wide open these gates that through his cross we might follow him. Not only is he bringing all earth into heaven in it, through the open wide of the gates, heaven has come down to us so that men and women might gather in a place like this and join in the liturgy of heaven and receive the bread of heaven at a table where God promises to make himself present. Unlike Jacob, who stole his birthright from his brother, Christ gave up his life that you might share in his birthright, that you might have an inheritance of sons and daughters. This is what he did in the cross. It is in the cross that all heaven and earth has been joined. And God is now present to us. And on the cross, we see his presence most fully in the vulnerable and the weakest place that is the place of the cross. May this message of grace transform us and may we in response respond with hearts that are filled with worship and generosity. Amen.